Good morning. Welcome to Storyline. Happy Sunday. Real quick, I want to give a shout out to our friend Connie Gain. It's her 90th birthday. Um, real quick this morning, next week, we will not be gathering here for our traditional gathering. We've got Impact coming up. It's our fifth Sunday, so on months out of five Sundays, we go out in the community and we gather. So um, if you're planning on being part of that, my ask to you is can you sign up today? Uh, we want to get an idea of who's going to be there next Sunday and what we can tell our community partners, um, uh, who's, how many people we, they can plan on participating in that. So as soon as you know what you want to do, and if you're going to be here next Sunday, that would be greatly appreciated. Another part of uh, some of the impact that we make in our community is through our Love Changes Lives program, where we collect our uh, spare change and loose change, and, uh, and we give away uh, our excess to an organization in this quarter. Uh, for the months of November and December, we're going to be partnering with an organization called Rising Kites. And I want to invite uh, Je uh, Danielle Granholm out uh, to the stage. She's going to tell us a little bit about her organization. Hi. Um, so. Hi. I'm Danielle. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Um, so, Rising Kites was started by me and my husband last June. Um, we, our mission is to provide bags of resources, encouragement, and education to hospitals and OBGYNs around the country um, to give to families when they receive a diagnosis of Down syndrome. Um, we, were, we had our daughter, Sammy, in May of 2020 um, here at Lakeland, and we had no indication prior to her being born that she would be born with Down syndrome. Um, and so when she was born, as you can imagine, it was an extremely overwhelming time for us. Um, and we just felt lost, confused, overwhelmed. And when we were sent home, although the hospital was amazing as far as the way they cared for us and cared for Sammy, um, they sent us home with a Google printout describing what Down syndrome was. And um, if you're ever in that situation, that is not the thing that you want to be sent home with. Um, so we spent, I'd say, the first month of her life just Googling everything that we could to find out resources to um, cover finances, to get connected in the Down Center community, um, and just to find out what a beautiful gift we've been given in our daughter. Um, and so we um, fill these bags with resources that we have found helpful, that we feel like families will be encouraged by, um, comforted by, and then also just educated and what resources are available for them within the state that they live in. Um, yeah. yeah, so we're, we're excited to, to give our treasure and to support you what you're doing. There are other ways that we could get involved in, in outside of that? Um, yeah, so I mean, you can go online to find out ways to get involved. Um, you can connect us with your hospital, your OBGYN. Um, we're currently um, connected with about 54 different facilities across the United States, um, but we're always looking for more to send our bags to. Right. Well, thank you, Danielle. This is such a great organization, such a needed, uh, needed piece uh, in our community, and so we're we're happy to support them through Love Changes Lives. You can grab a mason jar at the hub. Uh, both of us will be at the hub after the gathering if you've got questions. Um, and uh, other way to give is online through the through the giving page on our website. There's a Love Changes Lives drop down on there, uh, and you can give that way as well. Other than that, have a wonderful Sunday morning.
opening storyline. It's so good to be together. Uh, do you remember when we could just talk about differences like that? Like those were the days, right? Like we could actually just talk about how people were different and laugh and chuckle at it. But I actually hesitated to show that clip this morning because the last thing that I want to do is offend anyone. So for the record, just to make sure that we're all clear on this, if you have a mullet or at any point had a mullet, okay, you are still, we're glad you're here. Oh my, can you believe I did that? Oh my goodness. But differences aren't so funny nowadays. I think we all know that because we don't just point at them and chuckle. Uh, they're often pointed out and then used to accuse or exclude and divide. Last week I read um, actor Timothy Chalamet from the Doom movie um, said this, it's tough to be alive right now. I think societal collapse is in the air. It smells like it. And as much as I'd like to dismiss this because I don't often trust my sense of smell to judge reality, not, <laughs> not to mention a 20 year old actor, I feel like I smell it too. Maybe you do. Now, there have certainly been harder times to be alive than right now. And even in America, there have been times that are more divisive than the ones that we're in, than we're in right now. But for most of us in our lifetimes, this is as bad as it's been. And we all know it. All of this makes the words of Jesus that we're going to consider this morning, I think, relevant and critically important. Our read through the book of John, uh, this starting way back in June, has brought us now to chapter 17, where Jesus is going to pray. Like, God is going to pray for us. And when God prays, I think it's always just generally a good rule to pay attention. And, and this prayer is not just critically important, like, for us individually on a spiritual level, but it has significance for us societally, and I think globally, and even more for us this morning, communally, as in for Storyline. When Storyline began, it was very small. It was a small group of folks on a mission to reach out to colleagues and neighbors and friends who for whatever reason, and there are many, just didn't know or experience the love of God for them. So we invited folks to come to our gatherings and it didn't take long to discover something that um, it happened right away, and it's been true for our entire history. About one-third of us, as best we can tell, would raise our hands and go, you know what, I'm a, I am a Christian. And about um, one, another third of us in, in Storyline have really very little or maybe even no church background at all. And then there's another third that have been active in churches in the past, but somewhere along the line just stopped attending church entirely had some kind of crisis of faith or something happened. And this third has really done some, what we call deconstructing of their old faith. Now I've been told more times than I can count. It's always very gratifying and encouraging to hear this by folks in that group that, um, who see themselves that way, that, that God is offering them something through our community that they really haven't experienced before. It's like the time and the space and the patience to be a part of a community of faith while they are personally suspended somewhere between belief and unbelief and bouncing back and forth in between. 
And so for 18 years now, Storyline has kind of rallied around this mission and really embraced our identity as a pretty peculiar community filled with beloved friends who are at various stages of constructing, deconstructing, and reconstructing the life of faith. I promise you, we didn't plan this. It was not part of our idea or our design. It just happened. And as I look back on it now and I see the time and place in which we live, it feels like God has been preparing us for a moment just like the one we're living through right now. One where we are uniquely now positioned because of our experience and we're uniquely equipped because of who we are together to play a really important role in Jesus' prayer coming true in a divided and in a divisive world. Before we get into his prayer in John 17, I want to preface it briefly with a, a rather obscure story about Jesus, an encounter that he had with a blind man in Mark chapter 8. And this is one of those stories that very few of us have probably heard, and I think you'll see why in a second. But I, I want to use this story as a way to kind of frame Jesus' prayer, uh, because I think it might help us his prayer be a little bit more helpful for us. So in Mark chapter 8, Jesus touches a blind man in order to heal him. And that's not unusual. He did that in several different places in, in the Bible. And a really, this time, a really unusual thing happened. Okay? And to my knowledge, I think this is the only time it happened in the Bible. It only kind of worked. Now, that's such a weird thing to think about. It only kind of worked. So Jesus asked the guy, hey, can you see now? And the man replies in this super surprising way. This is what he said. I see men as trees walking. In other words, he could make out like moving forms, but he couldn't see clearly. And so Jesus touched him a second time and his sight was restored. I think you can see why this is a passage of scripture that maybe preachers like to skip over. Because it's like, oh, Jesus is having a bad day or something. Like, it's a bad hair, didn't eat his Wheaties. What's going on, right? So, now, we've been talking about, um, this has come up quite a bit in, as we've been reading through John together, the difference between representing God and representing God and the gospel of grace. And this story where the blind man gets a second touch, I think it reminds me so much of our mission which is to represent the God of grace by representing the God of grace to a world that isn't just divided and deconstructing, but is all too often divisive and destructive. Far too many people have been touched by God and yet still struggle with, like, what do I do with that? Now, some of those reasons are personal. And that's a totally legitimate struggle. We all go through that. I go through that. We just don't know what to make out, uh, what to do with this touch from God, with this encounter with God that's legit. And that's, and that's part of just growing, I think, and maturing. But some of the struggles, for far too many people, some of the struggles are man-made. They're man-made struggles. You know, many people are raised in the church have... Um, 
have been rethinking their previously held like unquestioned beliefs. Many people have left the faith altogether. Some have been the victims of abuse or turned off by the hypocrisy of Christians or, or by clergy scandals or by harsh and legalistic teaching and by this inappropriate pairing of like Christianity with certain political move, movements and parties or with traditional status quo culture and the way those all get mixed together and it's just big mess. And so people, then they struggle because of all those man-made obstacles. So Storyline is a community committed to second chances. Not just for one another, but for each of us to have God and the gospel of grace represented to us, touched a second time in order to see our way forward a little more clearly. And so I think it's into our divided and divisive time, into our deconstructed world of man-made blind spots that Jesus' prayer in John 17 rings out so powerfully, at least to me. And I think, I hope, it will be a reminder for us communally as to who God called us to be, the mission and the dream that he's given us. So you'll remember now, for the last five weeks, Jesus and his disciples, um, well, in our time, the last five Sundays, Jesus and his disciples have been in this little room in Jerusalem, starting back in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and now we're in 17. So for five chapters, it's one, it all takes place in one evening, but for five chapters now, Jesus has been basically talking to his disciples in this little room in Jerusalem, trying to reassure them of his love and to prepare them for a future that's going to be very difficult. Like, to call it divisive and destructive is a massive understatement for what is about to happen. So John 17 brings all of this to a crescendo as Jesus, as God. John's made it clear throughout his gospel that Jesus is God himself with us. So as God prays for us, that's what this entire chapter is, John 17. It's God praying for us. And I want to focus on just a few lines. This is the prayer of Jesus for us. In the same way that you, God, Jesus is praying to God the Father, gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm praying not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me because of them. The goal is for all of them to become of one heart and mind. So in this little room in Jerusalem, we're seeing the very beginning of what we now call church. A very diverse group of very broken people coming together as one around a mission to embody the grace of God. Now, what can this mean for us individually? And what can it mean for us as a community living in the larger world that sometimes smells like it's collapsing? So there's a philosopher, um, a German philosopher, his name is Martin, his name was Martin Heidegger, and he writes about humanity being thrown into life. That's the phrase that he uses. And here's what he means by that. Life isn't our idea. No one is here because we chose to be here. We were just thrown into this. And this makes life complicated because we love it on the one hand, but we're confused on the other. We want it to go well, and yet we're kind of in the dark. 
he poses this little thought experiment to kind of illustrate how he believes all of humanity writ large feels. He says this, it's like we all want to sleep in our own beds only to wake up the next morning and we're inexplicably on a ship. We just wake up on this ship, it's full of people, it's obviously headed in a certain direction. What, he asks, would you be thinking in that situation? If you can imagine that, what would you be thinking in that situation? And Heidegger contends that all of us are asking the same two questions. How did we get here and where are we going, right? That's the human dilemma. That's the human condition. This is the human problem as Heidegger poses it. And I think, I, I know I resonate with that so much. So Jesus may not be answering these questions in his prayer for us, but certainly he is hinting strongly that the way we navigate the best life possible with these questions like burning in the back of our minds, our hearts and our souls is to be part of a church. To, to be a part of a committed community of people who are attempting to be God's hands and feet and broken heart in the world. A committed community on a mission to give everyone a second chance and a second touch. Now, when either of these is lost, the community or the mission, so are we. Now, there are communities with no mission beyond themselves. And there are individuals on a mission by themselves. And both are a problem. Both will leave us just lost in these questions. So it's clear from Jesus's prayer, this is not what he's inviting us into. It's, it, it is only when we have a mission we believe in together that how did we get here and where are we going begin to transform from something that haunts or hollows us out and our lives out into something that animates and inspires them. You know, I, I wonder if the reason that so many people have left the church is the same reason that Timothy Chalamet smells collapse. It's that we no longer have a shared mission, leaving us directionless and creating enormous polarization. It's not just among us, it's also within us.
favorite Mark Cook original song. So good. Thank you. Thank you. So my friend Al has this great saying. He says it all the time. He says, well, that ship has sailed, and we're all on it. And uh, I love that line because often it's usually he says it when, like, I'm trying to blame somebody else or some other group or something. And he just reminds me, oh, well, that ship sailed, Mike, and we're all on it together. So it's, it's true more often than I'd like to think, but I think it definitely is also the way God sees humanity writ large. Like, he loves us all. Everyone asking, how did we get here? Where are we going? Is desperately loved by a God who is totally dedicated to us. It's such a beautiful thing when you think about it. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that God wants everyone to experience and enjoy his love now and forever. We can't survive, much less thrive, if we are going to continue to exclude and divide around these big questions, that that's true for the world, our nation, and it's certainly true for the church. And as I was thinking about this this week, it made me wonder, like, what kind of ship have we been thrown onto? Like, I hope it's the love boat, right? Like, now look, everyone laughing, you're dating yourself, okay? The kids in here have no idea what we're talking about. I barely remember the love boat on ABC Saturday Night's Night. Anyway. So have we been thrown onto the love boat or is it more like the Titanic, right? Like what kind of boat have we been thrown onto in life? So maybe a better question is, how do we brace ourselves? How do we give up our lives, as my beautiful, beautiful song says, in exchange for this one love that's free? How do we cooperate with God and see Jesus' prayer come true in us and through us and becoming one? To get at that, I want to allow me just a little bit of time here to share some of the latest research on how human beings experience life. It's absolutely fascinating some of the things that neuroscience and psychology is coming up with, teaching us about how differently we see the world. We are neurologically and socially wired to gravitate towards people like ourselves. So blondes prefer blondes. Millennials would rather work with millennials. I mean, that's assuming they feel like working at all, okay? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. I did not write that, okay, I'm so sorry. But our, our brain, <laughs> oh my goodness, you guys are so mean, wow. Our brains are predisposed to seek out those who are like us to, and to unconsciously like discriminate against those who are different. It's just how we're wired. So dozens of studies have found similar results. For example, researchers arbitrarily, they take groups of people and they'll sometimes they, they split them up with the silliest of all distinctions. Like you're the blue group, you're the green group. And before you know it, these two groups are like at each other's throats. Like polarization it, it takes place almost immediately. And I don't even need to talk about what can happen at sporting events, you know, how violent they can get in the stands or sometimes on the field, or, my gosh, online discussions, how they can escalate into name-calling and then blocking people and then being uninvited to Thanksgiving, right? But here's what science is showing us. We don't see the world with our eyes. We see the world with our whole life. 
We see the world with our whole life. And when we see other people only through our life and our experiences, our perspective and background, we will inevitably see men as trees walking. Like these blurry figures, foreign, but making these threatening movements because we can't quite figure one another out. So if we want to get to know another person, if our mission is to be of one heart and one mind, we need to get to know one another. And that means we need to try to understand how one another, how we see the world. And that is why another theme that we've seen in John and another theme of, of storyline is why belonging, why it begins with belonging, why belonging is so critical, because we work out our differences. And that doesn't mean resolve our differences. It means we learn to appreciate our differences from within belonging. And if we're, if we're going to cooperate, if we're going to cooperate with Jesus' prayer, it begins with belonging with extending invitation, with embodying inclusion, with a patient, open, and curious dedication to walking a mile in another man's shoes. Our young men's Bible study meets on Monday nights, and we're reading through the book of Colossians. And I'm not a young man, but they let me come. So, uh, but the last two weeks, we focused in on this one just beautiful passage in Colossians. This is what it says. So spacious, is Jesus so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding not only that but all of the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe people and things animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies is this what people see generally in the church in our community in us. I didn't grow up going to church, and when I did, I, I know it certainly didn't feel that way to me. It didn't feel spacious and expansive. I saw it as exclusive, like something you had to be good enough in order to be a part of. But if we're on a mission, if Jesus' prayer for us is, on, is to be on a mission to, to become one, then we've got to realize that we've got to treat everyone as if they belong. Like, the ship has sailed, and we're all on it. It's critically important for us to begin to see one another more clearly as shipmates, to really seek to understand where other folks are coming from as they ask the question, how do we get here? Where are we going? You know, now psychologists know, and they talk about this little voice that we always have running in the back of our heads. It's always talking, or at least, actually, I shouldn't say always. For men, they say it's only, that voice is talking to us about 23% of the time. So every once in a while, Lisa will ask me, Mike, what are you thinking about? And 77% of the time, the answer is nothing. <laughs> this nothing box going right here, just hollow, right? Not much going on. But the voice in our heads is very different for different people. It's very different in different situations. You know, we can speak at 150 words per minute. We think at 4,000 words a minute. We don't realize it, but we are thinking much, much faster than we can talk. And so this voice that's running in our heads is very powerful. Researchers have given names to some of these voices. So for example, some of us, it's the faithful friend. Like, keep going, you can do it, right? 
Or others of us have this voice, the ambivalent parent, who's like offering, carrying criticism. There's also the proud rival who like badgers us and pushes us forward to be more successful. There's the helpless child voice who blames and then basks in self-pity. Our internal voice changes the way we see and experience the world. Other research shows that people with backpacks on consistently at the bottom of a hill, they interview people with backpacks on and people without backpacks on. You're about to climb this hill. And the people with backpacks on always overestimate how steep the hill is, the grade of the hill. My favorite example of how people see the world differently, it, it comes from the rainbow. This blew my mind. I read about this last week. Americans see a rainbow with seven bands. Russians see eight. So this is, I promise you this is true. And it's not because their eyes are different or that they can't count. It's because in Russian, light blue and dark blue are two completely different colors. Whereas for us, they're shades of the same color. Here's what all this means. We are all always creating the world around us. We are constructing and deconstructing and then reconstructing reality, like how we see life. I experience this every single week. Someone will say to me afterwards, or I'll get a text or a voicemail or an email later, and I'll get a comment like this. Mike, I just loved it when you said X. Or a lot of times I also get, Mike, I did not agree at all with when you said that, right? And I always respond the same way. I try to look like nice. And I say, well, tell me more about that. Knowing the entire time, I never said that. I never said that. We don't see the world with our eyes. We see the world with our entire life. Our view is determined by what kind of voice is running in our head that day. Are we a man or a woman? Do we have on a backpack or not? Do we speak English or Russian? Are we constructing our first faith? Deconstructing our old faith? Or reconstructing a new faith? All of these things and countless other factors shape the lenses through which we see the world. Like it or not, that's the ship that has sailed. And believe it or not, we're all on it. We're all on it. That's not to say there's nothing good or nothing true that we can know. It's not to say that there's nothing good or true that we can share. But it is to suggest that we have more in common than answers. And when we realize that, the prayer of Jesus starts to come true in us and among us. It's a great scene from a movie of that name, Doubt. Is it possible that God is so expansive and so spacious that even our doubt and our ignorance can find its proper place in Him? That our questions and our wonderings, our struggles, can actually be part of what brings us together. Jesus' invitation, his prayer for us in that little room, is that we would be unified. But that doesn't mean uniformity. It can also mean harmony. Religion just refuses to acknowledge this. 
Jesus did, and this is why religion hated him. Religion says, this is the way the world is. Not only is what we see the way things are and what we believe true, we see all that is true and what we believe is the whole truth. And when you agree with that, then, then you can get a ticket to get on board our boat. But maybe what Jesus is showing us with the way that he treated people, with the way he reached out to people who had been left behind and left over, with the way he included anybody who wanted to belong, that, that were already on board. Maybe what Jesus is trying to tell us is that the ship has sailed and we're all on it. And where this goes, like how this goes, like is this the love boat or the Titanic, is largely going to be determined by our cooperation with his prayer or our rebellion against it. I'd like to close with just a few practical examples of how we can cooperate with the prayer of Jesus. And it's something... Um, from author David Brooks. He writes a column in the New York Times every week. He's written quite a few books. I know one of our community groups read through one of his books called The Second Mountain years ago. But um, he has, I think, this brilliant way of describing how we can really get to know one another. And he coined this term, illusion, illuminationism. Illuminationism. And this is how he defines it. It's the quality of attention that you bring to another person. And he claims that this is the central moral act of your life. <laughs> Never heard anything like that before. I think it's just brilliant. So he points out there are several ingredients to illuminationism. I'm, we're just going to go over two very quickly. The first one is something he calls accompaniment. And Pope Francis actually talks about this word a lot, accompaniment. It's an other-centered way of paying attention to people. Like no other agenda at all other than them. Like seeking to understand as best as we can where they're coming from, what it is that they see. Listen for the voice in their head. You know, this is, there's a lot of things that I love about my friend Mike Cook. He's obviously an incredibly gifted artist. He's also just such a super guy. But I think the, the most miraculous gift that he gives this community week in and week out is that he really listens to the music and to the band, to the singers. And then he comes in in just the right ways, in just the right places to accompany them. And what ends up happening is uh, we all walk out of here, don't, do we not? Like just in awe of how good our band is, right? They're amazing. They're, they're, yes, they're amazing. It's unbelievable. Some, some folks actually come early to listen to them as they put it together. And it's just this process of all, of all of them listening, really listening to one another. And how can we accompany one another? And Mike leads that effort, and it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And it, it just makes everything sound, and everyone sound better. The only agenda is, how can we help one another to shine? It's beautiful. Accompaniment. 
No agenda other than someone else's flourishing. Not getting your point across, not seeking to be understood, but seeking to understand and to accompany. Another ingredient that Brooks talks about is just simply quality conversations. Quality conversations. Here's what he says, I love this. Attention is an on-off switch. It's not a dimmer switch. Now, I was more prepared to talk about this when I thought Lisa wasn't gonna be here, but she showed up at the last minute. <clears throat> so I, was, I should have, I wanted to scrap this part of the talk when I saw that she made it here from the airport. But, because she tells me this all the time. I treat attention like a dimmer switch. I'm gonna pay this much attention to, to not you, Lisa, but other people, okay? But here's, here's what he's saying. That's not how attention works. It's, an, it's a binary. It's on or off. And when we are, um, we have to be on when people are sharing, especially when they're describing their rainbow, especially when they see eight colors and we see seven. So attention, it's an on-off switch. It's not a dimmer switch. He also talks about this. He goes, be loud listeners. I love that. It was, it's one of the things I miss most about teaching in Los Angeles. When I taught in Los Angeles for years, about half of my class was African-American, and the way that that community listens is responsive. It's like I would be given just what I thought was a boring lecture on the opening of the Civil War or something. They'd be like, uh-huh, yep, or I bet he did, or, you know, you said it, Mr. G, and I was like, wow, they like me. Like, they're really listening, right? Look, we all love to be listened to loudly. Be loud listeners. I love that. The last one is this. Don't fear the pause. That I'm so guilty. I'm so bad at this. Don't stop listening when others are talking because you're thinking about what you're going to say. The same part of our brain that's thinking about what am I going to say next is the same part of the brain that listens. So guess what you're not doing if you're thinking about what you're going to say? So let other people finish and then pause and then respond. Don't be afraid of the pause. The point is, his point is, that the quality of a conversation is determined by the quality of the questions and the listening, not the speaking. My friend Susan was a master listener. And what a gift she gave me with the way that she would listen to me and try to teach me to listen. She was such a gift. My friend Ellen leads our rest of the story um, discussion group at, at the market at, um, every Sunday. And it's so good. It is so good. And it, it's so much better and richer and deeper than my talks here because Ellen crafts such wise and open-ended questions. And then she listens. It's so beautiful. Look, if the prayer of Jesus is going to come true in us and through us, it will only be by his power for sure, but with our cooperation. And that is what can harmonize us. Not our answers, but our openness to ask and to listen to one another and to recognize we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so we must always be trying to see both sides.
did we get here? Where are we going? Like if we're certain how we see life is how life is, then our answers are gonna drive us apart. We will find ourselves on the Titanic, but the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus provides another way. And his prayer for us here in John 17 is that we would follow him into that way, to live expansively and openly and to harmonize as much around our questions and our struggles and our doubts as we unify around our victories and celebrations. What if the blind man had failed to be honest? What if after being touched the first time by Jesus, he would have said, I'm fine. I can see, I don't need another touch. He would have gone through life seeing men as trees, walking. We all need a second chance. We all need a second touch. And this ship that we've been thrown on, on this ship that we've been thrown onto, as we construct our first faith, or deconstruct our old one, or reconstruct our new one. And maybe admitting that is how Jesus' prayer comes true in us and through us. I suspect that would be the ship that we would all want to be on. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place, for this opportunity to come together, to seek out your love and your grace, and to um, be with one another. God, I pray that you would help us to not just look for you and listen for you, but also to really look for and to listen to one another. I pray that uh, as Storyline moves forward, we more and more become a community that embodies your grace, that invites and includes everyone that recognizes that your ship has sailed and we're all on it together. Thank you so much for loving us like that. God, I pray that as we leave here this morning, you would help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, folks. Great to see you. We'll see you soon. Martinez, all you need. Let's get everything we make, we make it. Then we'll leave a basket. Water is what we need.